So let's uh, do that now. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we're going to turn our attention to this morning. And it's a part two to what we studied last time. It was a pretty sobering topic. And Hebrews 6 is meant to do this for our benefit. And this is under the title, Immunized, Being Immunized to the Gospel. So I said last week, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 is one of the most difficult, controversial passages in all of the Bible. It takes some work to get clarity on what is there. And we're going to do that work again this morning. What appears unresolvable when you read a text like this with a little work, it can be boiled down to some simplicity. Truths difficult to grasp and accept become easier to grasp when you accept the truth that's there. And often it boils down to accepting the truth that's there by faith. You have to exercise faith to believe what's there. Admittedly, on the face, it's difficult to understand, but it's perhaps more difficult once you understand what's there to actually apply what's there and to believe that what this is communicating actually is happening all around us. Because as we learned last week, this text is primarily talking about professing believers, those who look like believers on the outside, but as far as we can tell, are not believers on the inside because they are walking away from the Lord Jesus, backsliding, perhaps as believers, but often to our own heartbreak, we're finding out that people who looked vibrant, who looked alive spiritually... The soil that was rocky soil that shot up life for a while but then withered away to our saddened hearts is proving out that people are drifting or perhaps not spiritually alive. J.C. Ryle said there's two ways of coming down from the top of a church steeple. One is to jump down and the other is to come down by the steps, but both will lead you to the bottom. So also, there are two ways of going to hell. One is to walk into it with your eyes wide open. Few people do that. The other is to go down by the steps of little sins. And that way, I fear, is only too common. Put up with a, little, a few little sins and you will soon want a few more. Uh, during my seminary days, I worked at the master's college and joined a missions team for six weeks one time. Three weeks in the North Island of New Zealand and then three weeks in the South Island of New Zealand, I was suffering for Jesus. Anyway, it was beautiful there. It was gorgeous in the North Island. They, uh, we ministered with a church to a church and then we did three weeks in the South to a church in the more rural area of Hokitika and it was just gorgeous everywhere. There are 4 million people in New Zealand, the land of the long white cloud because of the mountain range. It looks like a long white cloud as you're coming up by ship. Not that we did that. But there are 40 million sheep on the island of New Zealand. And those sheep are sheared and they use the wool, but they also eat them. (laughs) And uh, the way that they slaughter these sheep is by selecting a male sheep castrating that sheep and they call it appropriately the Judas sheep and this is a sheep that leads the herd of the 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 sheep the flock to its death this is a picture of false shepherds the bible uses that picture and says that false shepherds will lead sheep astray J.C. Ryle talks about Judas Iscariot being a false leader but he also says that believers can even be as self-deceived as Judas Iscariot. They exceed the hardness of heart to which a backslider, backsliding professor attains where you can't even believe how bad off they are. He says, Judas, one of the 12 apostles, became a guide to those who captured Jesus. We're told that he used the knowledge of the place of the Lord's retirement in order to bring his deadly enemies upon him. And we're told that when the band of men and officers approached his master in order to take him prisoner, Judas stood with them. He was three years, constant companion with Christ, saw Christ's miracles. 
He heard his sermons. He benefited from his private instruction. He was a professed believer. He worked and preached in Jesus' name. That's Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is recorded for us in Scripture to forever be a testimony of who we don't want to become. What is man? He had the highest privilege and yet went to the lowest depth of sin. Privileges misused, this is Ryle, seem to paralyze the conscience. And he makes the quote, the same fire that melts the wax will harden the clay. Let's beware of our hopes of salvation being on religious knowledge, however great, religious advantages, however many, doctrinal truth that we know all can prove rotten at the heart level. He says, above all, let us beware of cherishing within our hearts the secret and besetting sin. He said, one faulty link in a chain may cause a shipwreck. One little link may sink a ship. We don't want to have secrets in our hearts. We don't want to cherish something in our hearts to our own detriment and demise where we are faking ourselves out thinking we're just fine. While all the while we're either leading others astray or ourselves being led astray. Looking at our text, we uh, raised two questions last week. First one is, can someone who is truly a Christian fall away and lose his or her salvation? Look at verse one again. Of chapter 6, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's stop there. Remember, this is where the author, the writer, who we don't know exactly who it is, But he as a believer is including himself with these believers. And he's saying we need to press on to maturity. We can't stay stagnant where we are. Staying stagnant with the elementary principles here will just keep us in a funk and we'll start to digress. Drinking milk, there's nothing wrong with drinking the milk of the word of God. Believing the Old Testament stories and narratives and poetry and prophecy that all pointed to Christ. There's everything right about believing that, right? We believe in the elementary principles, the ABCs of God. We don't want to throw out our children's storybook. We don't want to throw out the flannel graph. We don't want to throw out our Christian education. We don't want to throw out what we've learned. We don't want to throw out how we've been discipled. This has brought us to a stage. But if you just stick at that stage and in your mind say, okay, I'm good. That puts you in an extremely dangerous and vulnerable spot where you're trying to, as it says, recycle the foundation that you are standing on. Do not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Don't just say, well, I believe that I can't be saved by my works, so I'm good. I believe that you're, that you're saved by faith alone, so that's good enough. Verse 2, instruction about washings. This is the, uh, not baptism, but the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. And as I said, not just the priest would wash, but just the commoners would have basins by their doors. And they would wash all the time to cleanse themselves. When really the point of the Old Testament, especially leading to the new, is to believe, about, believe in the washed heart that we need. Titus 3, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 38, where we are cleansed from our idolatry in our hearts. This is the new covenant that we were to move on to, that Christians are saved under, where they are born again. And there's a danger and threat for these believers to be stuck and stymied where they are and to regress The laying on of hands speaks of the priest laying hands on a sacrifice where there was a transference of guilt onto the animal that would be slain as that was embraced as a symbol of Christ who is to come, the Lamb of God. They believed that, the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the afterlife. They believed, as Job believed, in some form of resurrection. But they had been clarified in terms of Christ's teaching about resurrection in Lazarus and Christ himself. They believed in that. They believed in eternity. They believed in eternal judgment. They knew about hell. Verse 3. 
And this we will do. This, this maturing we will do if God permits. We're not going to be Pharisees. We're not going to stay in some sort of external mindset as whitewashed tombs. We're going to move forward in the Christian life. If God permits, God is the author and engineer of our sanctification. But the point that's being made here is look at how much they were affirming and yet still how dangerous a situation they were still in. They knew the Bible. You can know God's word and be on your way to hell. You can know God's word. You can know good doctrine and affirm good theology and have a heart that is far from Jesus. What else can you have that people will cling to for the assurance of their salvation and still miss heaven? Well, it's all the experiences that are then described in verse 4 and verses 4 and 5. For it is impossible, and we're going to talk about someone who is in this case in an impossible situation. But it's in the case of those who've been enlightened. This is Fotidzo, someone who has had an experience with Christ, who has seen the light of Jesus, who has come to understand with clear perception something about truth, someone who has tasted the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift is Christ himself. And this is tasting and seeing that God is good. It's the initial step that every believer must take. But in this case, someone can take that step and taste Christ, but not fully consume Christ. Christ said, as we talked about last week, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have eternal life. Christ calls for full commitment. And these are people who they've tasted Christ. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. The word share is they've been around the Holy Spirit. They've seen the power of God in spiritual gifts and dynamics within the church. They've watched people come from death to life and be saved. They've seen the waters of baptism where people testify of a transformed life. And that's impactful. And they're not denying those experiences. But this is someone who is in an, in an impossible situation. They're in a conundrum. The author here has disassociated himself because he said in verse four again, in the case of those, not him, not true believers, but those, those people, they've had these things. Verse five, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. The word here is the word rhema, as we talked about last week. It's not the comprehensive logos truth of the Bible. It's they've heard the word of God here and there like dagger strikes. The rhema word, the same word that's used with the armor of God, the dagger. It's the idea of a word that is spoken, a spoken word. I think in Ephesians 6, actually, that is makaira for dagger, but same concept, same idea. It's a spoken word. In a moment for a specific instance, nothing wrong with the word of God being spoken. It's just if you do not embrace the word of God at a saving level, it is very dangerous to still be around the word of God. And the powers of the age to come, the powers being the dynamic miracles and Hebrews 2 talks about how they were exposed to the miracle ministry of the New Testament church, undeniable power. So we talked about last week, all of these dynamics are linked together to have one of these experiences. The language here and the grammar is saying that these people had had all of these experiences around them. It's just like growing up in church and just being around it all the time. And what I compared it to last week is it's the idea of being immunized where you have a little bit of Jesus injected in you. But it's instead of it transforming and consuming all of you, like an immunization creates these antibodies inside of you that create a wall or a protection against the disease fully taking over. In the same way, if you have a little bit of Jesus, the antibodies are forming in the heart where you're so familiar with Christ and you have all the right answers and you have all the right doctrine and you've got all the right 
actions in church, you're doing all the right things, but really your heart at the same time is walled off against really truly embracing Christ, really having Christ completely consume you all of your life. And that's the danger that's being warned against here. It's coming in contact with the light, like coming in contact with the sun that could be so wonderful, but at the same time, can give you skin cancer. So this condition that someone could find themselves in is described here at the beginning of verse 6. You connect it with the beginning of verse 4, for it is impossible for someone who has all these experiences that are described in verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Well, we're really looking at two questions that we're trying to answer. And the second question is before us here. And that is, can someone during his lifetime render himself beyond the reach of God's grace? First question is, in essence, can someone during his lifetime lose his salvation? Can he, can he fall away as a believer? And believers can't truly fall away. If you're a, a saved Christian, you're always saved. But can someone who thinks he is saved or she is saved within the church, within the gospel, grows up in it, can someone who hardens themselves at this level come to the point of no return in their lifetime? That's the question that I'm asking this morning. Can someone be beyond the reach of God's grace? Well, let's consider that this warning is a genuine warning to this audience. He's genuinely warning the church, that within the church, there could be some sitting there listening, even here this morning, who could fall prey to a situation like this, where in their case, there is something that becomes impossible. Verse six explains what this is. It's the level of exposure to Christ where they have fallen away. The word fallen away can be translated apostatized. It's someone who has gone out from the gospel. And they are in a place of impossibility to be restored again. We have to put the word impossible in context to really understand what's going on here. The word impossible is used four different times throughout these 13 chapters of Hebrews. And I think understanding The three uses of impossible helps us understand the fourth use of impossible, which I'm labeling that as Hebrews 6, verse 4. Well, the first one I want to look at is Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie. If you just look down the chapter a little bit, you'll see that phrase in the middle of verse 18. It's impossible for God to lie. This, in this context, means God will keep his promises. What God promises, he will keep it. Why? Because it's impossible for God to go against his character and lie to you. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it because his character is truth, his perfect integrity. Secondly, it's impossible, Hebrews 10, 4, second impossibility that's listed in Hebrews that I'm listing here. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The idea in the context there is that because God is holy, divine, and eternal, it would be impossible for something that's temporal, that's an animal, a physical animal to actually take away sins. In other words, because God is holy, God is eternal, he required a holy and eternal sacrifice that would be worthy to truly, genuinely take away our sins. And that is class Jesus, right? 
So it's impossible for a lamb or goat to actually do that because God who is eternal and holy requires an eternal and holy sacrifice to atone for our sins that are against an eternal and holy God. Lastly, Without faith, it is impossible. This is Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This means that man has to believe in God and not the other way around. God is not believing in you. I guess in one sense you could say he believes in you because he loves you. But God is not exercising faith in you. What he requires is for man to worship or to exercise faith in him. Why? Because he is God. By nature, he is God and we are not. And so the creature worships the creator. The creature is the one who cast himself upon God, not the other way around. A lot of times in even Christian culture, they will flip that and make God about us, not us about magnifying and glorifying God. But God, it's impossible for God to have it in reverse. What does this all mean? Well, all three of these impossibilities have something in common, and that is this. All of these impossibilities are anchored in God's nature. Let me say it again. It's all of these impossibilities are anchored in, un, in God's unchanging nature, unchangeable nature, immutable nature. He is who he is. God anchors us, not we anchoring God or us anchoring God. This is the great difference between us and God. We must change. We repent. God never repents to us. We need his unchanging grace. He never needs our grace as if we could give it. Understanding what makes these things impossible should tell us something about what makes Hebrews 6, 4, that condition impossible. Because I want to make the case that this situation is also anchored in God's unchanging nature. Can someone in their lifetime render themselves beyond the reach of God's grace? That's the question before us. Well, now let's consider what makes this situation impossible. Well, first of all, it's, the straightforward reading is that in verse 6, some hypothetically can fall away or have fallen away. They've seen these experiences. They've had these experiences, all of them. And then afterwards, having fallen away or having walked away from the Lord. And I've labored to prove that these experiences do not mean someone is saved. These experiences that I listed before are not words like that person's justified or regenerated or sanctified, holy, or glorified. These are not final salvation terms. These are experiences that believers have and unbelievers have. Believers and professing believers who are genuinely not believers. These are the experiences that do not prove someone is saved. Their perseverance proves that they are saved. But in this case, These people have had all of these experiences and then are walking away and they're putting themselves in a state where it is impossible to, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance, to literally renew them. They looked like they were alive, but now that we see that they are dead, it's impossible to bring them to a state of resuscitated life. They're not restored to repentance. The word repentance is the word metanoia. The word metanoia means changing how you think. To repent is to be going one direction and then where God stops you and gives you a gift of repentance, a change of mindset that redirects 
your life. You were walking one direction towards sin, and now you're walking the other direction towards Christ. And 2 Timothy 2.25 speaks of repentance as a gift that can be granted by the Lord. But the emphasis here in verse 6 is not on whether or not the Lord is giving the gift or not. The emphasis is on what a person is doing against God's character that is keeping him from being renewed. That's the emphasis. Remember, God's character is holy and he's truth and he demands our worship. These are all of what the impossibilities that we listed before speak of. He demands to be worshiped because he is the creator. He demands to be worshiped because he is God. He demands to be worshiped because he is of the truth. He cannot lie. He's eternal. And what's happening here is people are falling away at a level that's rendering it impossible for God at that point to intervene. Why? Because it says, since, verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Someone is giving themselves over to the point of mocking Christ at a level where they're perpetually doing this, they're perpetually crucifying the Lord. It's as if they have entered back into that moment where the crowds gathered around Christ and said, crucify him, crucify him. And a person's hard-hearted state is at such a level where they were exposed to the power of God, but they've walked away from it, where it's as if they are re-entering into the crowds that are crying, crucify him, and they're doing it perpetually, ongoingly, raising up the Lord in mockery. They knew better, but they ignored what they knew and literally mocked and are mocking Christ to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Again, God cannot lie because he's holy. God is divine and eternal, requiring a divine and eternal sacrifice. God as God must be the object of worship meaning that man exercises faith in him. These are all, are all based on God's character. And this is why God's holy nature is why in some cases with certain people who fall away at this level, he will not override this person's state. This mockery is bringing shame to Christ. And as he brings shame to Christ, he's in a state of hardening or calcifying his own heart to his own harm. You see that in verse six? He's doing it to his own harm, shaming Christ. Remember, God's nature requires faith. And this person is caught in a catch 22 where he's hardening his heart as he shames Christ. What are some examples of this in scripture? I know this is a sad state to open up, but I think it's an important one. The devil and a third of his angels. Remember, all the angels were holy angels. They were created holy, but God permitted a level of autonomy where an angel can choose to go against God. And so Satan did that, believing that he was going to be as good as God, raised himself up. And God forever condemned Satan and a third of the angels, which how many are a third of the angels? Well, in Revelation, it says there are myriads and myriads of angels, 10,000s upon 10,000s, uncountable upon uncountable numbers of angels. Well, a third of those angels followed Satan and were forever condemned in their rejection of God and condemned to ultimately burn in the lake of fire forever. Then you have the Pharisees who attributed Christ's miracles to Satan and they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Mark 3, 28 and 30 um, recounts this. The Pharisees had condemned 
Christ's power, his miracle power to Satan, basically calling him Beelzebub. He is Satan himself. And Christ said, look, a house cannot be divided against itself. I'm casting out demons. What are you doing? And then ultimately Christ condemns the Pharisees in their sin, saying all sins are forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but guilty of an eternal sin. It's someone who is eternally condemned. Remember Luke eleven twenty four. it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is speaking to the same dynamic where if you are exposed to the work of God, And it's as if Christ says, I'm casting out a demon out of you. And the demon leaves. But then at that point, if instead of worshiping Christ, you say, you know what? I'm going to sweep the house. I'm going to get myself in order. I mean, it's like if you're sitting there right now, for instance, and saying, you know what? I feel really guilty about some things and I'm going to really ratchet up my quiet times. I'm going to join that study. And I'm not saying don't go to the Laker Bible study. You got to do that. But don't do it out of performance. Don't do it to try to earn your way back to God or keep yourself right with God. That's satanic. When you do that and you sweep the house in your heart and you say, okay, I've cleaned up now. I'm all good. That's when seven more demons come into your life. That's what he's saying. The Pharisees hardened and they really hardened their hearts. Judas Iscariot, he threw the 30 pieces of silver back to the treasury. But what did, they, what did he do? He wept in an an act of imploding, feeling sorry for himself for what he had done. This is worldly sorrow. And again, back to the demons who are unchanged and unchangeable in their state of condemnation, James 2.19, even the demons believe and shudder. Their belief isn't saving faith. Their belief is just acknowledging, yes, Christ is who he said he was, and we're terrified about that. That's James 2.19. And that is meant to warn believers of coming to a place where you know a lot, you know truth, you know a lot about God, but your heart is far from him. Your heart hardens. It's the immunization. It's a little bit of Jesus. I'll take a little bit in. I'll, I'll do a little bit of church. I'll do a little bit of fellowship. I'll do a little bit of Bible. I'll, I'll, I'll proclaim Christ just a little bit. Instead of it being a saving expression of your faith, you're just doing it out of some kind of false security, false performance that condemns you and hardens you, where suddenly you're mocking Christ by walking away. The false teachers are the example of these who walk away and never come back. They're irrational animals, Second Peter 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. They're rational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, destroyed to their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of wrongdoing. They're blots, blemishes. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery. They're enticing souls. They're going after unsteady people. They are accursed children. Verse 15, Forsaken the right way, they've gone astray. They go after Balaam and Beor. Verse 17, waterless springs. Verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh, barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruptions. They're they're hypocrites. They're enslaved. Verse 20, but if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's as if a false teacher could come up for air and see who Jesus is really for a moment. But then it says they are again entangled in them and the defilements and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. Do you see that? When you know about Christ, it's wonderful, unless it's not. 
like anything. Power tools are wonderful, but they can kill you. Guns, wonderful, go on record. But, you know, bad things can happen. You have to understand what you're dealing with. Christ is so powerful. We can't make a mockery of him by knowing a lot about him and not truly accepting him, by not truly giving him the worship that is due his name. It says, the last state has become worse for them than the first, verse 20, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is Judas Iscariot. It would have been better for him never to have been born. It would have been better for these people never to have known the holy commandment. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. You hear people, according to Christ's teaching, being in hell, weeping and gnashing their teeth. What are they doing? Are they repenting in hell? No, they are Judas Iscariot. Sorry they got caught, feeling sorry for themselves and then gnashing their teeth at God in anger forever that's what's described as a warning in Hebrews 6 but this is all through scripture as well this professing believer is in a constant state of holding up Christ to open contempt or open shame what does that do to the church well One author put it this way. He said, when we fall away, we make a mocking show of Christ. How is that? When we sin, the world will say, so that is all that Christianity is worth. So that is all that Christ can do. So that is all that the cross has achieved. It's bad enough that when a church member falls into sin, he brings shame to himself and discredit on his church. But what is worse is that he draws taunts and jeers on Christ. In such case, this person will not exercise faith and consequently Christ lets him go into reprobation. Reprobation means God is passing over certain ones. Hell is the ultimate picture of eternal reprobation where he allows true and righteous judgment to fall upon deserving sinners. The question invariably arises as to whether or not there's something wrong with God's grace. Is God's grace truly sufficient in this life then? Are there people really that God will not save in this life? Well, verses seven and eight answer this question. And I had never read until recent years, Verses 1 to 6 in the context of verses 7 and 8, but verses 7 and 8 are an illustration to clarify all of what's being taught here. It gives two pictures of two kinds of land, soft land, fertile land, and hard land. Listen to verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You have a clear illustration of two fields before us. The first, verse 7, is the field meaning believers. Believers. The field speaks of the church. It's land or the word earth that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. What is the rain? The rain is the grace of God. And it's the idea that it's constantly raining. It's Seattle. It is raining and raining and raining. It's raining often and it's falling on the earth. There's no problem with the rain. There's no problem with this picture of grace. Nothing's wrong with the grace that's coming down. It's effective. What is the rain? Well, you could even say that the rain represents the experiences of verses 4 and 5. It's the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person who's tasted Christ genuinely, who's shared in the Holy Spirit and the power of God has impacted them outwardly and inwardly, tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've eaten the word of God as more than their necessary food, savingly, 
the powers of the age to come. They see that God is powerful. This is the rain that's coming in blessings. It's the blessing of the word of Christ. And it's produced a crop or a living vegetation that is produced or literally born up to those for whose sake it is cultivated. That's so interesting. It's a picture of the church. When you invest in people and you're discipling people, the word of God is raining down through your ministry in their lives. And then they bless you back for the sake of it is for whose sake it is cultivated. It's a crop useful. And it's, it's, it's blessing that's coming back on the disciples, coming back within the church. They receive a blessing from God. But then you have, by contrast, verse 8. It says, but if it bears thorns. Now, the it here is speaking of another scenario of land. It's just picking right up on verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain often. So you have land. That's earth. And it's raining. It's pouring down rain. Nothing wrong with this rain. This is the same grace The same word of God, the same oracles of God, the same ABCs, elementary principles of God, the same Holy Spirit blessings of God, the same enlightening that's happening of God. All of this is happening, but there's nothing wrong with the rain, but there's something wrong with the earth. And you know there's something wrong with the earth because what's born here are thorns and thistles. That's worthless, adakimas. It does not pass the test. It's worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. The trajectory of this land, it's only going to produce something that you can't eat and you can't enjoy and you can't walk on. It's thorns, it's briars, it's thistles. It's, it's land that cannot and will not be cultivated. It's condemned. It's only to be burned. God's grace is not the problem. The human heart is where the problem lies. The state of hardness will bring final death. That's what verse 8 says. But don't miss the fact that God is not withholding his grace. I mean, when we talk about people reaching the point of no return, it's not because God's grace isn't still pouring out in their lifetime all the time, it's always coming. Always coming, always coming. The problem isn't with God and his grace. The problem lies with the human heart that's rejecting the grace of the gospel. Someone will not, at this point, exercise saving faith. So that person is putting themselves beyond God's grace. So let me ask the question, does this mean we give up on people? Do we let people go? The Bible doesn't teach that. It does teach this hard truth. When someone reaches this state, do we know for sure that they've reached it? The point of The gospel is that we, on this end of things, down here on earth, we don't have x-ray vision to see in people's hearts to know if they are putting themselves beyond the reach of God's grace or not. And praise the Lord, we don't know. Praise God, in this life, we cannot know who is going to ultimately reject the gospel or not, right? We don't know who's going to hell and who is not going to go to hell. We don't know who's going to heaven or not going to heaven. We don't even know in terms of people that look really good on the outside who's really going to heaven oftentimes, right? Praise God for that. Personally, I think there's a little clue of how we're supposed to think that's found in verse 8. Did you see it there? It says, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. There's just a little bit of a glimmer of hope there for you to think this way. Yes, someone can, 
be in, be in that impossible state where they will not be renewed to repentance. And they might be, but we don't know for sure that they are at that place yet. And they're near to being burned, but they're not burned yet. The last final song has not been sung in the story of this person's life. So what do we do with that? We don't know certainly that they are going to be condemned. And if you look back at verse six, I think this gives a little bit of light as well. A person who has fallen away is a person who is crucifying once again, the son of God. That picture of crucifixion is the idea that it's someone who is in a perpetual state of saying, I'm holding the Lord in open shame. But I think there are some people who are in the beginning of that stage who God intercepts and snatches them before they completely harden. Where would that be? Well, let's go back in the gospels to the first crucifixion scene. The crowds were crying, crucify him. And while they were crying, crucify, what did Christ pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them, Luke 23, 34. In the case of some who were crying crucify, they got forgiven. Now, probably a whole bunch did not. And they calcified and they were forever condemned. And they're the field that's burned eternally. But some of them escaped the fire Let me name a few candidates of this. How about the mocking thief on the cross? Right up to the point of his death, he and the other thief mocked Christ. You say both were mocking Christ? Yes. Matthew 27 says two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him saying, these things. He saves others. He cannot save himself. Save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Who was saying things like that? Well, you had the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. You had people who were passing by. And then it says in verse 44, and the robbers, plural, the thieves on either side of Christ, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Both thieves all the way up to the end. You would talk about being in a bad situation. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now I'm dying next to him and I'm going to mock you for it. Save yourself, save us. What are you doing? That's what both of them were doing. One heart completely hardening and the other heart hardening And then Luke 23, softening. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Something happened. Steve gets saved. What are are we doing? The other rebuked him saying, "Do, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He realized he deserved to be where he was. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He exercises faith. That's what pleases God. And relied upon Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, not the blood of goats and bulls. He relied upon Jesus, who is truth. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, truly, I say to you, and he's going to keep his promise, right? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Are we supposed to give up on people? We don't know if a thief on the cross is going to believe. How about the mocking centurion? In the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land, the ninth hour, Jesus cries, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Bystanders are mocking, saying, this man's calling out to Elijah. One of them at once took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Verse 49, and Jesus cried out in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then the curtain in the temple is rent in two. The earth is shaking. The rocks are splitting. The tombs are open and bodies of the saints who fall asleep are raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The gospel is going out. And I have no doubt that the centurion who's standing there was taking part in the mocking. It says, when the centurion and those who were with him, so there's other people with these centurions all around at Christ's feet, keeping watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake, what took place, and conversion. This is, I mean, it's all the way up to, they have beaten Jesus to death. They have raised him up into open shame. And they say, truly, this, this one who is just ripped to shreds. This is the son of God. Are we supposed to give up on people? No. We're supposed to be warned by this text. But Acts 2, let's roll the tape a little forward. Peter's preaching. The Holy Spirit's come. All these Jews, all these self-righteous, all these, I mean, I'm just telling you, these self-righteous people show up filled with themselves saying, oh, we're going to, we're going to go on the pilgrimage here to our festival and, and um, you know, praise God for the harvest he'll give us and he'll provide wheat for us. And he gave us the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's why we're at Pentecost. No, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches and he says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You put the Romans up to this, but you're responsible. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What happened? Verses 37 and 41, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said to them, brothers, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And how many believed? Verse 41, about 3,000. So did all of the crowd that cried crucify him, were all of them part of the 3,000? No, but 3,000 were saved. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's grace. So what does this mean? It means that You might be praying for someone in your family, in your friendship circle, who you think is walking away, who's going to be converted and be one of the most radical believers that you could, couldn't even imagine. It's the Mary Magdalene. You know how many demons were cast out of Mary? Because I think it was the same person. Seven. Remember the verse I read before? Luke 11, seven demons came in to reside in the self-righteous person. That was Mary and they were cast out and she wept at the feet of Jesus and anointed his head and feet. Apostle Paul, rebel Christian. Is God's grace sufficient to save your loved ones? Yes. Grab on to them, hang on to them, pray for them, preach to them, care for them. And trust God. 